guys. And these thousands of environmental scientists are saying, this is the major problem in the next century. Well, I'm going to go and work on this. I can make a career. I was 20 at the time. And I thought, this is a good place to make a career. Sure. Because global warming is going to be the problem of the century. And so, you know, and I went and did science things. And, you know, there were test tubes and buttons and flashing lights and things like that. And then I got to NETL. This is the ORISE Feature Cast, a special edition of Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Join Michael Holtz for conversations with ORISE experts on STEM workforce development, scientific and technical reviews, and the evaluation of radiation exposure and environmental contamination. You'll also hear from ORISE research program participants and their mentors as they talk about their experiences and how they are helping shape the future of science. Welcome to the ORISE Feature Cast. Welcome to the ORISE Feature Cast, where we talk about all things ORISE. Um, today, we are talking to one of our past research program participants, Jonathan Levine, who is going to talk about his experience with the NETL program. Jonathan, welcome to the ORISE Feature Cast. How are you today? Very good. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit um, about you and how you found the um, ORISE uh, fellowship program that you were part of? I picked up the phone and I called. Did uh, you really? So, so what actually happened was um, I was, I, my PhD was in carbon sequestration. And in the last year, we had the, the BP oil spill, Deepwater Horizon okay. disaster. So the oil was leaking out. There was this big question, how do you stop it? They put a big box down, the box iced up with a material called clathrate hydrates. So I got a postdoc in Colorado at the premier center for hydrate research. And okay. so uh, they've been given some money to build a system to study this problem. So my first couple of weeks there, I was like, well, who are the experts in this? I'm going to look up who already does this kind of work. And I found somebody and I found they had this like giant center. They had spent like 10 years building something that no one in the world had. And so I was like, I'm going to give them a call, see what happens. So I, gave him a call. I need to be part of this. Yeah. I gave him a call. I said, you know, hey, we're, I'm supposed to build this thing. I just got this new job. I'm supposed to build this thing. You guys doing this for 10 years. Uh, you know, it was Bob Warzynski and Ron Lynn. And I said, hey, Bob, you know, get, how does this work? Can I come out and check it out? They said, sure, come on out. So I, I flew out to Pittsburgh and uh, in classic Pittsburgh style, there was a snowstorm. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so. So I'm at the local, uh, you know, Applebee's or whatever. And uh, Bob's like, oh, we, we, we need to get over here. I might, might be closed for a day or two. So I got over there, checked it out. And that turned into uh, a lot of years, eventually my working. Uh, I flew back and forth for some years. And then I ended up moving to Pittsburgh to work with Bob Wozinski full time. Okay. And that was the ORISE program. That was the ORISE program in a nutshell, <laughs> right? Um, so it just... For clarification, for the folks who are who are watching or listening, you were you are an alumnus of the National Energy um, Technology Laboratory um, postgraduate research program, and essentially you were investigating solutions to help clean up fossil fuel pollution. That's correct. Right. And um, how long were you part of that work? Well. So my PhD was in carbon sequestration. Then I started working with NETL in 2011. Okay. We were working with one of the large oil companies uh, because they don't like oil leaks either. 
So they sure. don't want that to happen. So they, you know, they were helping fund that. We were talking to NOAA at the time. They're in charge of oil spill response, uh, the Bureau of Safety Environmental Enforcement. They were involved. And, and I think 2016, so five years total, and, and NETL is the, the country's fossil energy lab. Right. But, but the major thrust was, okay, you've got coal, uh, things like that. Well, how do you clean it up? So they were the ones who invented a lot of the coal scrubbing to get rid of industrial pollution. And then now the current problem is CO2 pollution. So how do we get, sure. rid, of, how do we get rid of greenhouse gas pollution? So NETL is working on that as well. How did this world, I guess, find you? Or how did you, Jonathan, find this world? So uh, I used to be uh, on the, the advocacy side as an undergrad. You know, you're supposed to protest things when you're 19. Right, right. And protest things and hold signs. And so, you know, I used to do that kind of stuff. And I was the president for the students for this and the students for that and that kind of thing. Um, and I kind of got tired, you know, the advocacy thing. I kind of realized a lot of people could do policy work. Uh, but back in high school, I actually worked making carbon nanotubes at Rice University for Nobel Prize winner Richard Smalley. Okay. Not because it was hard, but because nobody, nobody told me it was hard. So it was easy. I just went and I just did it. They said, do this, do that. So I did. So I made carbon <laughs> nanotubes when I was 17. That was my high school job. Wow. No one told me it was supposed to be hard. So I, it wasn't. <laughs> right. So, and you, so then, and you uh, like it, right? Well, and then the other thing that happened was uh, there's this thing called the IPCC. The, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Okay. And it's one of those, like, you know, everybody talks about it. But I, when I was in college, I was like, you know, this was 2001, 2002. I was like, well, I could just download and read it. So I did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I was a college student. I was like, you could just read this thing. So I did. I read the summary report. I read some of the other reports. And I was like, this was 2002. Right. And, you kind of stopped paying attention to what the general news said and you read the darn report and you saw that they had thousands and thousands of references you went uh we got a problem these guys have figured out that there's a problem this was not a secret this was the third report this was the third report in 15 20 years right thousands of people have been working on this for decades by the time 2002 came around and so all that i did was i listened to them i said <laughs> These thousands of environmental scientists are saying this is the major problem in the next century. Well, I'm going to go and work on this. I can make a career. I was 20 at the time, and I thought this is a good place to make a career. Sure. Global warming is going to be the problem of the century. And so, you know, then I went and did science and things, and, you know, there were test tubes and buttons and flashing lights and things like that. And then I got to NETL. Gotcha. <laughs> wow. So, um, what have you been doing since? I know you've published a number of papers, um, but what have you been doing since the end of your fellowship? So I was studying CO2 disposal. And, okay. and given you've got a bunch of general interest listeners, I think it's worth noting in 2013, 2014, I applied for a stack of faculty jobs. And people okay. said, nobody will fund carbon sequestration. So you'll never get tenure because you won't be able to get the million dollars you need to get tenure. Right. There's $4 billion just for direct air capture sequestration this year, wow. which my boss invented and didn't get a dollar for. There was no money for any of this research. So I didn't get a faculty job because there was no funding for doing carbon sequestration. Okay. And there was no funding for any of this kind of stuff in academia. And so people said, well, you know, there's just no interest, uh, you know, and now 
there's billion dollar prizes and companies left and right, and there's billions of dollars of venture capital and all this other stuff. So in, in parallel, what happened was my wife had invented a kind of paper that does clean drinking water. And in uh, 2014, 2015, became world famous as a chemist, accidentally. Wow. So she was on like BBC News, most read articles. She was on CNN, Time Magazine Invention of the Year. And so we ended up with a company. Okay, wow. So I'm the CEO of Folio Materials for the last six years. We, we started as Folio Water. Okay. Um, and then we realized it's sort of a broader uh, coding technology. And so we do industrial scale coding at partner firms. And we work, we've got a water purifier. We make um, antiviral face masks. Okay. <laughs> and uh, microwave food packaging. Wow. It's all paper, not plastic kind of use cases. Right. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's, um, really amazing how you've really taken all of this knowledge and you know all of this work that you've done to to be in a place now where you're the ceo of a company doing great things um for health for the environment for people in general i mean i feel like there's an obvious connection but how you know how does your work as an orise research participant with nettle sort of figure into where you are today so what i think a lot of people are not nearly people are not aware enough of the role of the national labs the department of energy national labs and they're a role between the universities and between industry mm -hmm. so it's it's there's technology readiness levels where you go from bench scale you've got a handful of people working on something to teams of people larger laboratories multi-million dollar laboratories with 20 subsystems, 5, 10, 20 people on a project. And then you've got industry where you have hundreds or thousands of people. Right. That's, that's an ETL, right? ETL is that large labs, multi-million dollar facilities, large complex projects involving a lot of different domain experts all coming together, external partners from other universities, other national, you know, other, other government agencies, other industry working, you know, industry comes in as well. And so you bring them all together. So it's between what you're going to do at a, at a university lab and what you're going to do at industry is that national lab. And that's, that's that transition, right? Okay. You're starting to see systems, you're seeing systems of systems, you're seeing different domains coming together rather than one specialization, you'll have five specializations. Sure. So that's kind of where the national lab comes in. And that, that was true in Pittsburgh as well. Does that translate into how your company operates today? Is there that level of partnership or is yeah. that an aspiration? Yeah, no, no, no. Every, every startup, but I mean, the same is true, no matter how big your company is. Companies exist in a value chain. And so you've got different value chain partners that have domain expertise in their respective areas. And that could mean HR, it could mean accounting, it could mean industrial manufacturing, it could mean regulatory, legal, it could mean any of a bunch of different things, but you basically say, okay, you've got these different partners, you've got different technical domains, you've got different sales domains or project management operational domains. Sure, okay, that makes perfect sense. Um, for students, graduates, postgrads, you know, who might be looking for fellowship opportunities i mean obviously not everyone's gonna get to the point of launching a startup but you know <laughs> obviously it's possible 
what would you tell um, those people who are looking for opportunities? And like you said, they may not be thinking of the National Lab, but... Yeah, so so I actually got uh, my graduate fellowship mandated that I had exposure. I had to go get an inter internship or fellowship at either, okay. uh, a company or a national lab. So okay. I was working at Schlumberger Dahl Research. Schlumberger was doing all of the carbon sequestration work for the Department of Energy. Okay. So I was actually got to see Schlumberger as part of my PhD work, and then I got to see the national lab as part of my postdoc. I think it's absolutely critical if you're in the, the applied sciences. I think it's really important to see that sciences or engineering or these kinds of things can be done with very different working environments, very different kinds of resource bases. Because you go from every university professor kind of runs their own mini department, mini company, mm -hmm. right, mini lab. At a national lab, you have groups of people and you've got many labs working together. And hopefully they show you that, hey, this is part of 10 different labs that are at, at, at NETL Pittsburgh and 10 labs in West Virginia. And by the way, there's labs in Oregon. And then they're working with, you know, I've got five publications with Los Alamos, uh, National Lab in New Mexico. And then there's the universities that are working with. And then by the way, they're funding the universities. And so you start to see that there's actually a, a system of science that is not right. your lab. So you go from seeing the nail and the hammer of like, here we are to, oh, <laughs> this is a collection. Yeah. And, and I think that perspective is really important because in the, in the MBA schools, they teach them those things, but they don't teach engineers and chemists those things. Sure. And none of it really happens in a vacuum. I mean, as you said, right. Right. Like your one lab is part of a system of right. systems. Um, unless you work at, at JPL, at Jet Propulsion Lab, and then everything's in a vacuum. <laughs> right. True that. And then you got to build a vacuum system. You got to figure out how to work on things there. It's kind of tough. It's just a tough world. So, <laughs> so I was actually just at uh, American Chemical Society last week on a panel with, with actually Nobel Prize winner. That was cool. Uh, yeah. They had the students, and these are students who want to build leadership, entrepreneurship. And same thing, a bunch of them, I said, look, during your PhD program, go and see other labs. Go and see other labs. Just go see how somebody else does the same exact thing and how the world is different in wherever they are, wherever they are. And so O-Rise is a natural way to do that and, and get paid to live in Tennessee, you know, Oak Ridge in Tennessee or somewhere for the summer uh, or for a year and get to see some other physical place that you wouldn't think to live and you can see how their lab works. And, you know, you can usually justify it to your PhD advisor because you, you what a lot of grad students and postdocs who might be listening to this won't realize sure. is that their being present at a different lab builds a, a working network for their boss. So they may think my boss doesn't want me to go to another lab in Pittsburgh or in Tennessee or wherever, but in fact, you're building an alliance for your boss with a different lab. And by the right. way, NETL is where all the funding comes from in the Department of Energy. So your boss might not be too upset if you go to Pittsburgh and West Virginia where the funding comes from. They might be perfectly happy to send you there for three months and then they get an alliance, they get a collaborator and they, they end up with something else happening in the future. Sure, and you get a mentor and then you build relationships with other scientists as well. So everybody wins, right? <laughs> well, and, and, and in the sciences and in engineering, we're, we don't teach the soft skills. Right. So at this ACS Leeds conference, they had a whole session on here's how you network. It's not, none of it's rocket science. It's all one of those like, say what you do, ask people how they got in the room, 
what are you here to do? What kind of stuff do you work on? Where do you see this all going? Oh, that's, you know, and then, and then the other one is build friendships. Like, sure. go, go get dinner, go and have a beer with them. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. But, but all of those things are really important. And we don't, the MBA and the businessy people are really big into doing this. Like every Thursday night, we had a kegger at the business school as we're walking to the laboratory, the engineering school, go get work done. Well, they're doing work too. They're just swapping names and, and you know, having a beer while doing it. But we're busy going to the labs and not talk to anybody. Right, right. But that's actually, you, you get the interview based on technical competency and sort of me get the job based on both. Yep. Right. Makes perfect sense. In fact, you, you may not have gotten into the interview without having been a warm introduction through a network. And then you got through the screening process because you were technically competent and capable. And then you got the job because of both. <laughs> right. Right. And now you got to sell it. You got to sell your right. skills. Yeah. You got to sell it. And, and selling it, the other thing that the perspective gives you is I, I talk to a lot of engineers and chemists and they say oh, I do this narrow thing over here and you go well it sounds like you built a system combining software hardware 20 other components and you did all of that with a project budget that looked like that working with five peers and three bosses and you did all of that and wrote all the reports right right oh well in that case that's a lot of transferable skills <laughs> right right so soft skills are critical. <laughs> soft skills are critical and then understanding how what you do also maps to other things. Absolutely. Your, your technical skill is not of a one of a kind, but sort of a generic example of something bigger, or it's a specific example of something more general. Right, right. And to get all of that, it helps to get those fellowship and internship opportunities. Perspective and, by being somewhere else and hearing some other people and how they think. Yep, absolutely. Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything you want to make sure we cover that we haven't talked about? No, I think it's fabulous that you're doing this. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you for representing ORISE and uh, NETL so well. Um, and congratulations on the startup. And I look forward to hearing more about what you all do in the future. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the O-Rise FeatureCast. To learn more about the Oak Ridge Institute for Science and Education, visit orise.oreu.gov or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at O-Rise Connect.